chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. There's nothing more pleasant. I think I can get an amen on this. There's nothing any more pleasant and enjoyable, wonderful than domestic harmony. To, to have a happy home. Um, you know, it doesn't matter how many things go wrong in the day, in the in home, you know, during the day. I mean, the kids can squall and fight and the plumbing break. And it doesn't matter how many hassles you have at work, you know, how many deadlines you miss, how many problems arise. If you've got love and, and joy, uh, if, you're, if it's happy at home, it, it seems like it's, you can handle all those pressures. And, and it doesn't matter how much uh, joy is missing in what you're doing in the daytime. If you've got joy at home, it just seems like that's enough to make it through life. But there's nothing any more painful than the lack of love and acceptance and joy in the home. There's nothing any more painful than an unhappy home. Now, how do people handle um, an unhappy home? How do they handle that? Well, you can, you can do it one of four ways. You can admit that you have unhappiness in your marriage, in your home. You can admit that. You can get help. Some do that. They seek counsel and help from others. They, they turn to God. They bring their problems to Him. Or they, they seek the help of a professional counselor or some loving pastor. But they, they admit it. We've got a problem and we don't like it. We want help. There are some who've just made up their mind that they're going to quietly endure the happiness in their home. They're just going to kind of hang in there even though they're miserably unhappy. And if you want to use Thoreau's words, they live in quiet desperation. I have a hunch that there's some people tonight watching on television that know exactly what I'm talking about. For some reason or other, they're just hanging in there and they're in quiet desperation. They're just suffering in silence, the most miserable existence, an unhappy marriage, an unhappy home. There might be some here in this room just like that. Or you can resort to violence. Hostility begins to emerge. There can be violence, either verbal or physical violence. Sociologists say that one of the most dangerous places in the world tonight is in the modern home. And there is literally a war going on behind the four walls of many homes. And some resort to the ultimate violence and they take one another's lives. Or you can turn to separation or divorce. Now, I would be less than honest tonight if I said, if I didn't admit that, that the one of four of these, that divorce or separation, these kinds of unhappiness, this kind of frustration, if, I'd be less than honest if I said that that didn't happen to Christians. It does. Some wonderful Christians who are experiencing this kind of unhappiness and frustration. I'd be less than honest to say that it, that if I said that the, the, the problems that exist in the unhappiest marriages in the world did not touch Christian homes, they, they do. 
One out of every two marriages ends in divorce. 50% of the marriages will end in divorce. Many of those are Christians. And Margaret Mead talks about the fact that some of us, that many of us come to marriage with a, with a premature concept about it. We come to the altar thinking about divorce prematurely, saying as we come to the altar, if this thing doesn't work out, we'll just quit. Somebody said that the two processes that ought not to be entered into prematurely are embalming and divorce. I have to admit, that's probably true. Now I want to give you some passages that that you need to get in hand concerning divorce. Now I'm not going to read them, I'm just going to let you jot them down, but you need to have them handy. You need to put them in the flyleaf of your Bible. Somebody is going to ask you what the Bible teaches about separation and divorce. And I want to give you the, the passages that deal with it in the Bible. Are you ready? Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 through 25. Passages that have to do with marriage, separation, divorce, and remarriage. Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Matthew 5, 31 and 32. Matthew 5, 31 and 32. In the same book, Matthew 19, 3 through 12. And you need to put an asterisk there by that one because this is a passage that deals with the exception clause. The exception clause has to do with, with the exception that, that permits remarriage, that is adultery. You need to put an asterisk by that. Romans 7, 1 through 3 talks about the widowed and remarriage for the widowed. Romans 7, 1 through 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the passage, part of the chapter we're going to deal with tonight. 1 Corinthians 7. Now for men, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. And for women, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Now I want to say two things in, by, by means of introduction or to preface my message tonight. The first is that none of these passages answers all the questions, I mean individually. You can't just turn to one of these passages and it answer all the questions dealing with, with divorce, marriage, remarriage, separation, etc. And so tonight, we're not going to try to cover all the bases. We're just going to deal with what's in chapter 7, 1 Corinthians. Because all of these passages, not, not a single one of them deal with all the questions. See, are you, are you understanding what I'm saying? You've got to put them all together, you see. So that leads me to the second thing I want to say, and it's this that you need to make a study of all of these passages yourself, put them all together, read them all the way through without stopping and get some kind of concept as it runs from beginning to end about marriage, remarriage, separation and divorce. Now I wanna show you tonight what I believe to be some major guidelines concerning these issues. 
Now, I hope you won't pigeonhole me or stereotype me. I hope you won't label me tonight. I got a feeling some of you will. I just want to make a plea with you. I don't want you to label me as a liberal or, an, or a conservative, ultra-conservative. That guy's a liberal. That guy's an ultra-conservative. I'm just going to do what I think or uh, just going to share with you what I believe the Bible says. And I'm going to share tonight biblical truth. I don't want you doing anything, anything but just taking a look at what the Bible says. Now, what he does in chapter 7, and this is very important, what he does in chapter 7, now I'm skipping verses 1 through 7 that have to do with should I remain single because nobody would believe it anyway, <laughs> especially those of you wanting to get married bad, badly. No, the reason I'm skipping that is because I, I, I deal, dealt with that back last spring, to marry or not to marry. That is the question. Uh, you remember that famous sermon? Two of you remember it. But now what he does in chapter seven, now watch this. In the very beginning, he sets a, 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 a strategy. He, he sets a, a way that he's going to deal with the issue. This is the way he does it. He sets the ideal. This is the ideal, he says. This is the way it ought to be. You can see that even in chapter, one, chapter seven, verse one. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That is the ideal, he believes. He, he establishes the ideal. Then he makes a concession that's really important that you get that. He says, this is the ideal. This is the moral perfection. This is what God desires for everyone, but, and he makes a concession, and so we're gonna see how that develops as we, as we move on. Now looking at verse eight. The ideal in verse eight, let me read it, is this, but I say to, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I, now the ideal of verse eight, chapter seven, is addressed to the unmarried and to widows. And he says to them, it is good for you to remain, the ideal is for you to remain unmarried. Now, now remember that he's writing to the unmarried and to widows and he's ideal, the ideal, he says, is that you remain as I, that is, you remain unmarried. Now, we need to establish who he's talking about when he talks about the unmarried. When he refers to the unmarried and the widows, when he refers to the unmarried, he's not talking about people who have never been married. When he talks about people who have never been married, as in verse 25, he refers to them as virgins. Now, those who have never been married, he refers to as virgins. And in verse 34, he even makes a distinction between the two. He talks about the unmarried and the virgins. So when, he's taught, when he refers to the unmarried in verse eight, he's talking about single people who have been married before. Now, 
the reason I make this, I point this out, and I hope you get this. The reason I point this out is this, that in some people's theology, there is no room for remarriage at all, period. There are some people, some theologies, some, some's theology that, that leave no latitude, no place for remarriage at all if you've been married before. Now, it seems that with the Apostle Paul, he leaves latitude, he leaves room for remarriage after you have been married before, both for those who have been married, separate, divorce, those who are widowed. There seems to be that. Now, um, he, go, he does say that it, the more excellent way, the moral excellency, the, the ideal is that you remain unmarried like I am. Now that says to me, Paul been married before. If he refers to the married, to the unmarried, as those who have been married before and are now single, whose husbands or wives are not dead, evidently he'd been married before and was now single. Now the ideal is that, we, that you remain unmarried, but there is a concession made. Look at the concession, verse, verse nine. But if they do not have strength within, is the word for self-control, if they do not have strength within, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. That means, doesn't mean you're going to hell. It means to, to be aflame with passion. It, it's better to go ahead and marry than to have ungratified desires being single, not having the strength to live out the single life. It's better to go ahead and marry, he says. Now you can take verses eight and nine out of context if you want to. You can take those verses and you can put them up on your mirror and make them say anything you want to. But, but now, now folks, the ideal is, the, is, is in verse 17 and that's still the safest way. The clear idea for remarriage is that if you remarry, you marry in the Lord for sure and the idea is that you remain single, the ideal. Are you still with me? Now you can't let your mind wander because we're moving to verse 10 and 11. Okay, look at this. But to the married, I give instructions. Not I, but the Lord. That the wife should not leave her husband. Now skip the parenthesis, okay? We're gonna go from that the wife should not leave her husband and that the husband should not send his wife away. The parenthesis has been skipped. Now, if you don't have a Bible, you say, what does he mean by the parenthesis? Well, you'll just have to find that out later. There's a parenthesis there. We're gonna get back to it in a minute. All right, now, the, the idea omitting the parenthesis is this, that the wife stay with her husband and that the husband send not his wife away. In other words, he's saying, if you're married, you have a responsibility to hang in there. You have a responsibility to hang in there. Now, every marriage has its problems. Now, that's gonna surprise you. 
You thought mine was perfect. Ask Margaret. Every, every marriage has its problems. And anybody who tells you that we have a perfect marriage, never a problem, never a problem, are not telling you the whole truth. I mean, they'll lie about other things too if they'll lie about that. Now, every marriage is, has its problems. There's no such thing as a perfect marriage. Now, now, the idea here is that even though your marriage is not per, perfect, you have a responsibility to hang in there and to stay there with it. That's the ideal. All right? Now, the parenthesis is the concession. But, it says, but if she does leave, by the way, you say, well, why does it say the wife sent her away? Well, the husband is the head of the house. True story now, this is true. The husband is the head of the house. He, that's his house. Now, I know some of you, the only thing you'll get out of this message is that the husband is the head of the house and it's his, he's his privilege to send the wife away. But if you, that's all you get, you miss the whole point. That's, what, that's why he's taught, saying that. Now, the concession. But if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Now, the concession is this. He, he, he's, remember that he's writing in verse 10 and 11 to believers, to Christians. Both of them are Christians and they're unhappy in their marriage. You got that? Two Christians living together and they're unhappy in their marriage. The woman decides to leave or the husband is tired of his wife and he, he, he asks her to leave. They, they're, they're unhappy. They're living together, Christians who are unhappy. Now, I want us to look at case number one. He, he develops three cases. He says, let the mate remain unmarried if she leaves or he sends her away, then he is to remain unmarried. If he decides or she decides to remarry, the only one that they can remarry as far as scripturally is the person they were married to prior. They're two believers, they're living together and they, they, they separate for whatever reason she leaves, maybe for health reasons, she's sick and tired of him or whatever. But uh, uh, there's a separation and there's a, there, she leaves and she decides she wants to remarry. The only one she can biblically remarry is the husband she left. Vice versa is also true. Now, when marriage was begun, when it was instituted, there was no, there was no provision for divorce. I mean, when God started that first marriage, he meant for marriage to be for a lifetime. There was no provision for divorce. But when sin entered into the world and began to affect man and marriage, a provision was made for divorce. You remember that, don't you? In fact, Jesus talks about it. Moses, through Moses, a provision was made for sin that had entered into the marriage relationship and, the, and divorce came to be. Now, I want to illustrate what, it, what, what I'm trying to say. Let's just suppose tonight you've got a swimming pool in your backyard. Some folks do. And the ideal is that there be perfect, pure water in that swimming pool. I mean, not a, just not, not, a, not a germ in that water. That would, be, that would be what you'd want, not a, 
not a, not a bacteria one in there. But there's germs in the air, you know, there are germs in the water, and, and, and gross as it sounds, there are germs on you, and when you get in the water, those germs get in there. And so a little scum begins to appear, you know, on the water. It's caused from bacteria, germs. And so what you do is you get something to put into the water. You make a provision for it. You reach up on the shelf and you take down this box of what? Chlorine. It was never meant to be in that water. It was added, it was meant to, it was, it was given to add later. And when you look on that box, it says dangerous, handle with care. This is dangerous material. You just can't hand this, handle this indiscriminately. You better be careful with this. Now, marriage was instituted for a lifetime. Divorce was never meant to be, but because of sin, a provision was made. Chlorine was added. But God says, now when you handle this thing, this is dangerous th thing. This was never meant to be. You can't just indiscriminately go about divorcing people, handing them off, you know, with a writ of divorcement. This is serious business. That's the thing, see. Now, here it is. If a person, two believers are married and they're there has not been adultery. The exception clause of Matthew 19 does not apply. If it does not apply, then that person does not have the privilege of remarrying biblically, except to marry the person they left. Now, unless, now watch this, unless the provision of Matthew 19 applies, because he does say, I, this is what the Lord teaches, and the Lord said there, that, that, that if a person's uh, mate was guilty of adultery, then that person uh, had the right to remarry, my opinion. All right, case number two, verse 12 through 14. Verses 12 through 14 of chapter seven. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away for the Wait, I skipped one. But to the rest I say, not the Lord. I say, not the Lord, okay? That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband for otherwise your children are unclean but now they are holy. Case number two is this. Case number two, two unbelieving mates who are happy in their marriage. They're satisfied in their marriage. Now he says, I say this, not the Lord. Now, does that mean what we're getting here is Paul's opinion and not the, not the word of God? No. I mean, all scripture is inspired by God. All scripture has the same uh, importance and all of it is inspired by God. What he's saying is this. He's saying, now the Lord, when he talked about divorce, didn't shed any light on this. The Lord didn't tell us anything about this. He did tell us a lot about marriage, remarriage and divorce, but he's saying, now the Lord didn't tell us about this. I got this revelation later on. I got new input on this after the Lord told what he, said what he said about marriage and remarriage, et cetera. 
That's what he means by that. Now he's saying, if you have an unbelieving husband or an unbelieving wife and, and you're happy, don't, don't get a divorce. Don't send them away because they're unbelieving. Now, it probably means that one of them became a Christian after they were, their marriage and there was this unbeliever living with them. And the scripture says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And some of these Christians were leaving their husbands because they, their husbands. the children. And the second reason he said, don't, do, don't send them, don't leave them, because when you're there with an unbelieving husband, you, your presence there is the presence of the living Lord living among them. And, 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 and you'll sanctify them. That is, they'll find the Lord perhaps because of you, you see. All right, so case number three. Case number three is verse 15. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. Saranara. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. All right, now you've got, he's talking about an unbeliever who is unhappy and he leaves. He said, let him go. Now what he seems to be saying is when he says, you are no longer, that is the victim, the one who is left, has been left, is no longer bound, he said, is no longer bound by the marriage bond. And it seems to me that verses eight and nine begin to go into effect here. That is, that you have, you have the right to remarry if you marry in the Lord, that is, if you seek God's will for that marriage and the one God has for you. Now look at a little statement that's found at the end of verse 15. But God has called us to peace. Now that word is, um, is a heavy word in the Greek. It means the Hebrew shalom, irene, it means the very best for you. Now, now, now whatever else you think, Whatever else you think, this is a fact. God wants your happiness. He wants the very best for you. Now, let me tell you something. You don't gain any favors, any points with God by staying in a marriage that's terrible. You don't gain any points with God because the whole basis of, 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 of uh, God's dealing with man is is by grace. He wants the best for you. He wants you to be happy. And whatever he has designed as it relates to relationships with husband and wife, it's for our peace and our best. Now, the ultimate reason for us to stay in a marriage, he says, is verse 16. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? He has evangelism on his heart. And if you hang in there, it might be, just might be, that you'll win that wife or you'll win that husband. Who knows when it'll happen? Now, what I want to do in the end of this thing, let, let us out of here, is, is apply it. And I want to apply it in exact reverse 
I want to talk about in two or three minutes. The church's attitude toward divorced. I heard a testimony, or read the testimony of a lady who said that, uh, she said I was, it was a cold, dark winter evening and I was at church and I was standing at the back of the church and I was visiting with this gentleman in our church and uh, we were just talking and kind of laughing and we were visiting. And, and he went on and, and, and this man's wife came up to me and said, you don't need to be talking to my husband. You're divorced. And, and she said, you know, if I had gone out and robbed a bank or killed somebody and had come back to the church and repented of my sin and, and confessed that I've done wrong and was sorry, she said, I, they would have made me a hero. Said I, they would have asked me to give my testimony at every associational meeting, every meeting of the church. Here's this converted murderer, this converted bank robber. But she said, because I am divorced, I am a social outcast <laughs> as far as my church is concerned. Now I'm going to have to say this, and I believe it with all my heart. I have, I have never learned acceptance and love like I have learned it from you. You folks have taught me acceptance and love like no other church I've ever pastored. But we must be careful that we understand that a divorced person does not have a, the mark you know, of the curse upon them. God knows our frame, he says, that we are dust. And he understands that we are human beings and we make mistakes. Why can't we understand that? and have the same love and acceptance of those who have had this great heartache upon their life. Join me in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word, how relevant it is and how instructive it is, how it guides us and teaches us how to live. And I pray tonight that we'll accept your word as your word and be glad and grateful for it. In Jesus' name I pray. I want to give you an opportunity to respond publicly tonight. Maybe there might be some who need to receive Christ as their personal Savior. You've been thinking about it for a long time. You've heard messages and somebody shared with you and testimonies. You'd like to come and receive Christ. There might be some who need to join the church. Your desire is to be a part of a local fellowship where you can belong and be a part of ministry and service and be ministered unto. We invite you to come. Or perhaps to rededicate your life tonight to Jesus Christ. To walk closer to Him and in the center of His will. And who is there among us that has not made a mistake? Let the man without sin cast the first stone. You'd just like to come and say, hey, I, I know that I'm imperfect, but I want to walk with the Lord and I want to be used. I need to rededicate myself to Him. We'll have that opportunity for you to come while we stand to sing.